That's better. Okay. Yeah. Now I don't hear echo. We'll just have Seth on the the tin can this week. (laughs) But there's no echo, though. Welcome, one and all, to episode 113 of the original Draft Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Cox, and with me tonight, as always, my co-host, Justin Higdon. And Justin, um, we have a very special guest tonight to... You know, clear up some confusion that has become kind of mainstream within the draft world about, well, that running backs don't matter. And it's something that we're going to discuss today um, with, well, we can call him an expert because, I mean, hell, he played it in college. There's very few people that can even claim that that are doing this scouting thing. Um, And that's our guest, Emery Hunt. Emery, it's great to have you. Um, We appreciate you taking the time to come on with us and, and discuss college football you know it's great to be on man talking with my old good friends and seth and justin so it's been fun man like just you know seeing you guys do your thing and bringing the pod back you know one of the the pods that i always listen to and i'm glad you guys are back in the game because the game needs you guys (laughs) thank you for that yeah um it's good to have you back. I mean, we, we had uh, – you were probably our most frequent guest back in the old Draft Breakdown podcast days, and uh, we always enjoyed talking to you And uh, because you bring up a different perspective. Um, a lot of the draft, Nick, world has surprisingly shifted toward analytics, and that's also carried over into just football analysis as a whole, where you're, you're more of a purist. You're a guy who played college football. You've coached, and you see things from a different angle, and I think it's an important angle – to, to discuss because it seems like, and we're going to talk about running backs tonight, but on Thursday this week, we're going to run through and we're going to discuss more like positional value as a whole. And I think uh, you, you know, I really want to hear your takes on some of these questions that we have, because I, I think the arrows kind of swung, the pendulums kind of swung too far in that analytics direction. Yeah, I, I agree, man. It's 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 fascinating to see it play out first online and then premiate its way uh, to up toward the network television. And so now it really starts to influence the masses to where you're seeing people just parrot what they heard on TV or what they read online. And it, you could just because a lot of people say it doesn't make it true, you know, because at one point in time, people thought the world was flat. So. Some people still do, but for the most part, people thought the world <laughs> That's was true. flat. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, so back in uh, in 2014, that was the last time we had a draft where there were no first round running backs, and, and first round running backs have become, you know, there it's, it's become mainstream to think that it's a bad idea to spend a first round pick on a running back. But we've had some good ones, and we've had a, a, maybe a mixed bag. But Todd Gurley and Melvin Gordon in the first round in 2015. Ezekiel Elliott went in the top five in, in 2016. You had Fournette go fourth overall again the following year in 17. And then uh, Christian McCaffrey was the eighth overall pick that year in, in 17. There was a lot of debate about Saquon Barkley. Should he have been picked as highly as he was? He went second overall. A couple of uh, maybe misses later in 2018, later in that first round with uh, Penny going to the Seahawks and, and Sony Michelle to New England. Then you had Josh Jacobs, who had a good rookie year, kind of tailed off in his second year. He went 24th overall in 2019. And then Clyde 
Edwards Hilaire, who went uh, 32nd overall to the Chiefs, much to the chagrin we saw of a lot of Chiefs fans, including our, our good buddy Sully, who we talked to back on the O-Line show. This year we had two. Uh, we had Najee Harris go 24 overall to Pittsburgh, and we had Travis Etienne going 25th overall to Jacksonville. Interestingly enough, when I was doing kind of my research for this podcast, I looked at the 60,000-yard running back season since 2015, and only 13 of those have come from day three or undrafted free agent running backs, and which is a much larger pool than uh, if you're drafted on the first or second day. So with many, you know, first of all, it, it, it appears to me that running backs do matter. I think the question then is at what cost? And with many of the second-round running backs that we've seen, like Nick Chubb, and Dalvin Cook, uh, Derrick Henry, Jonathan Taylor last year, looking like young stars, and then other day two guys like Kareem Hunt, Alvin Kamara, uh, before he started to tail off Le'Veon Bell, these guys all posted gaudy numbers as well. So is the problem, is the problem um, much like with other positions, just that you're taking the wrong running backs in the first round? I think so. Uh, and when you look at, for instance, you look at some some of these running backs that you talked about. If you were at, if you were to ask people, quote unquote, in a redraft, there'll be like twelve running backs going in the first round, right? And and so, especially when you think about how everyone wants to talk about how the game is played now, your running back has to catch the football out of the backfield, has to be a threat in the passing game. Kamara will go in the first round. Bell will go in the first round. Hunt will go in the first round. Um, you know, I, I just think that a lot of times folks are focusing on focusing on the position and not the player when it's always been about the player and not the position. Um, think about, I always use 1989 as the standard, right? For what a first round pick supposed to look like your top five, I think four of the top five are in the pro football hall of fame. And, you know, and you're talking about a quarterback, a running back, a, a defensive end, you know, a cornerback, you know, people also would say don't take a cornerback that high. But if you're taking Deion Sanders, you take Deion Sanders that high. If you're taking Barry Sanders, you take Barry Sanders that high. If you're taking Troy Aikman, you take Troy Aikman that high, right? So I think it's always about the player. If the player, if the player's talent suggests first round, take him in the first round, regardless of position. Seeing Orlando Pace run down the field 50, 50 yards, step for step, for step with a receiver or a running back, and throwing blocks downfield, that suggests you take that dude number one overall. Take him number one overall, you know, and I think that's the difference. And this is no knock or no shade, but you watch Marshall Falk do what he did at San Diego State versus Miami versus BYU and all other schools in the whack that he tore up um, and, and against USC. You take that over uh, Big Daddy Dan Wilkinson, you know. So that tells you the talent supersedes the position if the talent is there always gamble on talent yeah i mean it doesn't always work out you had a hijana carter blows out his knee um even though he had a stellar uh, final college season before he went into the draft but um it just seems to me that the argument is is based on the argument to not ever draft this this position in the first round is always based on the worst outcomes you know, you talk about, like, for example, the year, I think it was a 2005 draft when when uh, Ronnie Brown and Cadillac Williams were top five picks. It, it's not that 
that uh, picking a running back in the top five is the worst idea to me. It's that picking the backup running back at Auburn <laughs> it, before the starting running back is, is probably a bad idea to make that high that early in the draft. I'm not saying those guys stunk or anything, but it, it never seemed like a good idea to take that particular player. Um, you're going to get busts at every position. Easily. And when you think about the other back that went in that draft, Cedric Benson, if Brown goes after Benson, I don't think anyone brings up the fact that three running backs went in the first round or what have you because Benson, by talent, was better. Cadillac was a starter and by, you know, all-around game was better. Ronnie Brown jumped that high because he ran that 4-3 at the combine and that catapulted him to that high in the draft. Uh, because people thought that speed meant that he was a game breaker. And I think that right there is a flaw that is still to this day. People get enamored by testing as opposed to what a player actually did out there on the field. When you look at kind of how that worked out, you, you, you mentioned Ronnie Brown, and that's a great point. Um, what are football analysts missing when it comes to the running back discussion? Because – it seemed like last year, and this was a conversation Jess and I had off the air, obviously, because we weren't on the air, but I told people I would have taken Jonathan Taylor at eight overall if I was the Arizona Cardinals because I, I truly believed he was that good. And then he came out and had athletic testing like few running backs do at his size. Um, and then he ended up going in the second round and – you know, kind of found a perfect spot in, in Indianapolis. But what, what what are folks missing when it comes to the running back discussion? I think they're missing the true talent and nuance of the position. You know, and also I, I, I strongly believe folks don't know what words mean. And I'll start there first. You know, when you think about the word elusive, elusive in the simplest form means not getting touched. So when you say someone is the most elusive back, instantly you think of, okay, that must be like Barry Sanders-like, somebody with good shake moves, somebody that doesn't really get touched, doesn't really get tackled too often, doesn't take big hits, hits, uh, someone that avoids contact. That sounds like elusive to me. That is actually what elusive is by definition. So let's just look at this draft. When you look at who people say is the most elusive back or broke many forced tackles, whatever the, the silly stat that they threw out there, forced missed tackles, um, which also sounds like elusive, which also sounds like not getting tackled or touched. So if you look at Javonta Williams out of North Carolina and his teammate, Michael Carter, one is the, the direct definition of elusive, forced missed tackles, broken tackles, that's, you know, uh, Michael Carter. Javonta Williams, he breaks tackles um, because he kind of runs into a lot of tackles, you know, and that is not elusive. That's someone that probably has good contact balance and good run power, you know, to break those tackles. But that's not elusive, you know, and I think people get those two things misconstrued. Even when you go back to the Josh Jacobs year, when you're talking about most elusive, you're talking about Daryl Henderson. You're not talking about Josh Jacobs. 
Um, but Josh Jacobs does have some elusivity because he's able to make a guy miss in the open field, but he also took on too much contact. And that's a part of the reason why you see him, you know, kind of stay banged up a bit, you know, in the, in the NFL. And so people focus on one, people don't know what the words mean. Um, so they're miscategorizing these backs and setting these, these ridiculous expectations uh, based off these, you know, fake metrics or, Pseudo scientific metrics that they're just creating every year. There's a new saying, a new science, new metric. But also, just from a what are they missing standpoint, the things that are important: vision, falling forward, uh, the you know the elusiveness that's that's combined in with that, uh, the ability to uh, change the game. You know, if you're a threat, you change how defenses attack you. You change how defenses game plan for you against you you open up everything else in a passing game when you're when you have a saquon barkley in your backfield you're more worried about not missing your gap or getting a good run fit uh you don't want no blown assignments in the front seven because that's going to be like an 80 yard touchdown uh you know and, and that's i think that part people don't give running backs enough credit for if you have a certified dog in the backfield and a handoff to him is just as dangerous as a deep pass going to Randy Moss. They both can go score on any given touch, any given play. And folks that can do that, that's your first round back. Just because you may, you know, run over a couple, you know, 19 year old defensive backs and, you know, make, you know, uh, you know, clips for Twitter and Instagram to get a lot of retweets and likes and shares. That, that doesn't mean you are, you know, a, dynamic player you know because a coach will tell you you know if it in that situation i needed you to make him miss i didn't need you to run him over you know we need you to score and i think those that are thinking in terms of scoring tend to be the more dynamic players Uh, and so i think we're seeing a lot of people just probably at its core just misevaluate the position or players at the position and they kind of get into this group think approach of well the position must not matter because anybody could play it you know, and I think people are looking at it from uh, from a metrics number standpoint, and not from a people standpoint. You know, Bettis. I love using Jerome Bettis. There was at one point in time where Jerome Bettis had more long runs, more runs of fifty plus than Reggie Bush did in the NFL. Um, and so, but on paper, you see five eleven two sixteen. You're like, there's no way in hell this dude has more explosive runs than the most dynamic player to come out of college football in you know probably history and so but that's the there that's why you take a bettis in the first round because he was a big back with quick feet and had good bursts so i think people need to look at things individually and not try to package you because everybody loves packaging players in groups um they love slot receivers they love you know quarterbacks obviously they love offensive linemen blocking defensive backs, but for whatever reason, they just don't like running backs that can hit the home run. Because that, to me, is is just as valuable as a wide receiver, like a Jalen Waddle. There's there's definitely something I think too uh, to trying to group players in in a way, like in in terms of, of uh, size and athleticism, athletics numbers, to to try and get comparisons, to try and get pro comparisons to these college players. But then part two of that is you can't just say like because somebody some 
you know, I, I remember I was doing Javante Williams trying to figure out who he compared to from a metric standpoint, and it spits out Boom Heron. Well, just because Javante Williams comparison that, that comes out at, you know, out of the uh, pro football reference database shows Boom Heron as being a good comparison. It doesn't mean that Javante Williams should go in the sixth round or, you know, is, is going to have a, a short career. But it, it should give you some, you know, it, it gives me some pause to say, like, you know, you've got this 212-pound guy, but he's still running over a 5.55 five, five, or 4.55. Five, five. And um, like you said, then you watch him on tape, and he's running into a lot of players. So I always felt like, and, and you and I talked about it a lot, Emery, that Javante Williams was kind of overvalued when you looked at his the, the total package, whether it was with, where you're looking at him um, on film or in terms of pro comparisons. And the only place where he really pops is with his, his stats. And think about it like this. When you're trying to explain to someone the, the David Montgomery aspect of it, you know, they talked about him being the most elusive back in college football, the more the most forced missed tackles. But his yards per carry at Iowa State was 4.7. You know, if this was, you know, 96, you know, 4.7 is outstanding. But in an era where everyone spreads the field, everyone runs zone read, everyone is averaging at least over five yards a carry, you being a lead dog in the backfield in an era where everyone's averaging over five yards a carry, you're getting 4.7. That tells me a lot about your explosiveness or your suddenness. And, um, you know, you're so you're making guys miss because he does have wiggle to make a guy miss. But the explosive component outside of that or after that is not there. So you're making guys miss in the same spot. Some people make guys miss while moving downhill. And that's the difference. But people see force miss tackles. Everyone takes what they want to craft their argument or their point of view. So it's really pointless to try to, you know, show somebody or get someone to understand what, what they should be seeing or how to look at it. Cause everyone's going to say, well, I found this stat. Or I found this clip of this guy making this guy miss. Yeah, that's, that's a great play. But if you look at the end of the game, he was, you know, 25 carries for 80 yards. Are we, are we really talking about Walter Payton here? You know? So I think people have to really be open to, understand what they're seeing but everyone's the smartest person on in football so i you know i just tend to let people be smart out there yeah it's 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 really funny you know got there are a lot of these uh these new metrics that are just telling us that that this is a not a position that you want to take in the first round and um really what it comes what it comes down to is you see a lot of uh, pushing toward these offenses that are like seven on seven football. Somebody made a, a an image recently of saying that like this is P, this is how PFF's offense looks, and it's just nothing but wide receivers and a quarterback. And it's just you you can't build a team that way. Um, you know, last week Seth and I talked about our uh, hits and misses as it related to the 2018 draft class. We used to talk, we used to have you on every year to talk about. Um, 
we we'd pick a, a specific draft class and we'd go over it and you'd you'd tell us our hits and misses. So for this one, we we wanted it's been a while since we talked to you, so we wanted to really pick your brain about the running back position and that evaluation. But since you're here and since this is kind of a tradition for us, we want to ask you what are your best hits and biggest misses at running back from you know the last few draft classes you can go back as far as uh, you know last show we had you on was probably in 2017 so uh from 2018 till this you know till through 2020 i guess what were your biggest hits and misses at running back well you know that's i I think my biggest miss ever so far since i've been doing this is probably the 2014 class where we didn't have a back taken in the first round my number one back that year was Lake Seastrunk out of Baylor. Loved him. Speed, explosiveness, reminded me a lot of uh, Napoleon Kaufman. Um, never really stuck in the NFL at all. Or in in Canada. Just kind of like, just couldn't get right, so to speak. So that would be my overall biggest miss. But I would even say my best hit was 2017's class. Um, I look at my top, I looked at my top 11, and there are two guys that are um that were that would be considered uh i guess but one would be considered a bust because he just never really stuck in the nfl the other one is is a backup on on i think it's like his third or fourth team but my top 10 was fournette delvin cook mccaffrey kareem hunt before he became you know popular uh tarik cohen he made all pro uh and I had, I'm looking at it here, uh, Williams. Oh, Jamal Williams. Uh, Jamal Williams. Then I had um, Joe Mixon, James Conner. Aaron Jones was my number 11. But the, the two guys out there top 11 that are what would be misses, in my opinion, would be um, Samaj P. Ryan I had at number 7, and Donnell Pumphrey I had at number 10. So I think that class... It was a was a really good class for me in terms of hitting prospects. Um, missing would be the 2018 class because outside of I had Saquon number one. My number two that year was I had Saquon number one with a 90 grade, so that was like an All Pro um, grade. The number that two be, uh, that could be a whole show of people uh, of how that how that narrative shifted on Saquon Barkley from his sophomore year to his junior year to his draft year. It, it all leads back to what we're talking about tonight. It, it, bingo! That right? That could be a whole dichotomy. Uh, number my number two back that year was Rashad Penny, and he had an eighty, I think, an eighty-one grade. So there was a big drop off from, in my opinion, from Saquon Barkley to the next guy. Right? So I had in this order: Rashad Penny, Sony Michelle. I was a big Mark Walton fan before he went seven thirty. Ronald Jones, Chase Edmonds, Darius Geis, Nick Chubb, and uh, Naheem Hines. So clearly from Penny, Michelle, Walton, all those guys ahead of Chubb uh, was is clearly a miss. Um, but I guess the hit in the hit in there would be Chase Chase Edmonds and Naheem Hines. You know, well, but. And, and not to make an excuse for you, but we're big on the conversation about health. And while while we don't have access to a guy's, you know, 
health records when you watch a guy live on in a game and watch his knee explode it does make you nervous to (laughs) to be like be like oh yeah this guy's definitely going to be a number one back coming out because you're like i mean you're you've been around the game long enough i've been around the game long enough i've had a knee injury and watched other people with knee injuries like you don't know how they're going to come back you don't know how they're going to recover and what what type of player they're going to be and i mean again not to make an excuse for you but i i think nick chubb went where he should have gone in the draft because when you look at chubb versus like a todd Gurley, for instance who had a similar type of um injury you you see how quickly the rise and fall of those guys are because that that injury is just it's so hard to be able to not just come back but to sustain longevity especially at a position like running back where you're getting beat up all the time especially when your game is predicated on explosiveness and burst like it's hard to say yeah oh he'll be back to what we saw pre-knee injury um, and and I want to say around 2015, I started to, and I got this from Justin, where it was, you know, you can't really just not factor in injury. You know, it, yeah, in a perfect world, the guy is healthy. This is what you want. But if he's always shown to be injured or is coming off a significant injury, you kind of want to factor that in. And so I started to do that in 2016. Um, and so when we got to 18, seeing how his, and again, being a running back, having multiple knee injuries on the same knee and knowing you, there were certain, you know, things that I wasn't able to do, um, based off th- that previous injury history and, and not saying, I'm not saying I was on any level of Nick Chubb as a player, prospect, athlete, none of that. I'm just saying from having that injury playing that position, I know there are certain things that kind of stay with you that you think like you're going to hurt it again. Um, and to so if I look at the numerical grade, I had I had a half a point grade higher than Javante Williams, who's my 10th back this year. Uh, so I have what would be considered a second round grade on at So I had second round grades on Ronald Jones through Naheem Hines. So the first round grade, the top 10 grade I had was on Saquon. I guess you can call these late first round grades were on Penny, um, Mark Walton, and Tony Michelle. I mean, Penny and Michelle went in mid to late first. Mark Walton was a complete bust. So, you know, I, I would say, obviously in a redraft, you put Chubb number two. Um, but, you know, that that would be my biggest miss would be that 2018 class we're looking recent. Cleveland got a bargain, you know, with, with Chubb because he was coming off that injury and he it it did seem like he didn't have all that burst back until he got with the Browns. So I think that was part of it. His testing was fine, it was everything was good, but um you know, I think there was some some hesitancy in his game uh going into that that draft, but uh you know, I think again we're talking about I, I don't I don't recall off the top of my head where I had uh, I, I know I didn't have Penny or Michelle ranked as first round players. So I guess that you know comes full circle back to what I asked earlier where 
are the wrong guys being taken because if you if you see Nick Chubb going in the first round, um, and if you see Penny going to the third round or something like that, then I think I, I think a lot of it has to do with NFL sc- scouting. You know, they're, they're they're missing just as we do. They're missing players who become stars too, and that feeds the whole that feeds the beast when we have these draft value conversations because what happened is they they misvalued somebody and that guy's whole career now is based on where he actually got picked bingo because if you look at rashad penny it's it's like okay we drafted penny we're a run based team based off what he was running how he was running at san diego state i again i would have taken him in the first round and you think okay he's going to seattle all he have is this, you know, guy Chris Carson that runs into everybody and doesn't really have breakaway speed. This is the perfect situation for Rashad Penny. He should have a thousand yard season easily. Then he goes there, fumbles one time, and gets banished, and then he gets injured, and it just it snowballs for him. And he can never stay healthy, but he also put the ball on the ground, and it just didn't allow him to get into a group. Then I think he was overweight a little bit, you know. Um, so you know, you could say the weight was on him, the fumblings were on him, the injuries you can't control, but it just, once you don't start off with a bang, it kind of snowballs. And I think you saw that, you saw a little bit of, you know, success with Sony Michelle, but then injuries just kind of, it's almost like the injuries kind of zapped his little burst um, that he had coming in. And then you see Ronald Jones finally start to look promising last year so it took it took him what two and a half years to kind of get in good graces to where he was getting carries. Chase Edmonds is, you know, should be the guy in Arizona, um, but we'll see if they actually give him the football. He had a you know he had a hundred yard game against the Giants, uh, where he showed everything that you saw on film. But and we know about Geis' story as well. And Naheem Hines is being utilized exactly how he should be, and I, I've always been a big fan of him. But yeah, to me, it's about situation you know number one and then opportunity uh we see we saw this with you know uh with, with many players in different positions you see a let's say going back to detroit drafting an andre Ware, heisman trophy winner run the shoot offense goes to detroit which then had barry sanders so you had the right you had to run the shoot offense with the game breaker back yet you don't play andre Ware and and he never gets an opportunity to play. He's out of the league after, I think, playing like six or seven games. You know, so it's, it's always about opportunity and situation more so than than, uh, than than where you are picked. It's just about where you go and, and are you going to get the chance to be successful. And I want to say Naeem Hines, you're right about him, the way that the Colts use him. And, and it, it pissed me off to no end last year as a – a guy who had Jonathan Taylor on like every fantasy football team. So uh, good, good call on that, but I hope they get rid of him and he goes to another team soon. <laughs> Seth. Well, and, and, and to that point real quick, that is, I think part of the reason we're seeing so much um, disdain for the running back position now. And, and that's fantasy football. And, and it's not a shot at fantasy football because I'm one of the first people that will say, like, the reason football has taken off into this astronomical, um, you know, rabidness of, of fandom is 
because of fantasy football. Like, whenever you can put money on stuff, uh, the American people have shown that they want to do that as much as possible, and fantasy football gives them that access. But I think that you're always... I shouldn't say always. It's a broad statement. But I think a lot of times fantasy football is looking for the the to be smarter than everybody else. They for whatever reason they tend to hate chalk. Uh, you know, and for those that are listening that don't understand chalk like the favorite or, you know, the expected. That's that's what they call the chalk. And this tweet, this hot take kind of goes into that. Um Jeff Miller at FF Jeff M on Twitter and this is from 2016, just took Kenneth Dixon at 110 over Derrick Henry. Here's a live look at Henry in the green room. And remember, this is the uh, 2016 draft where it happened in May, and um, he took a picture of uh, dog crap, I guess we'll say dog crap, uh, for the censors around uh, (laughs) of of, of it. So, you know... You can say... say Rob asked it. Uh, Rob will edit it out. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, He'll believe but, you. But, that, I mean, that I feel like this is one of the bigger issues that we're seeing now in all of, all of draft Twitter or draft analytics is that everybody's looking to be the smart guy that gets in on the one guy that's drafted in the fourth or fifth round um and and you know and bypasses the the favorite and you know i think this year even though he was drafted in round 2 that was Javante Williams you know everybody that wanted to crown Javante Williams as the top back in the class like oh he's the best back in the class um and and you know oh Najee's not going to be able to do what Najee did at Alabama and i'm like well to your point, Emery, like, is Javante going to be able to do that? Because that, I mean, his game is predicated on running through people. Um, that's not a bad thing. Trust me, he's physical. Like, that's the first thing that stands out when you put on the tape and watch him run is he is a physical, physical dude. But does that translate when the linebackers aren't selling car insurance um, or – you know, are sub-220, but instead they're, you know, 245-pound guys that run a 4 4 um, That's, you know, that's what the question is. And, and when you look at what Najee's game style is and people say, oh, well, he's not as physical as you want him to be for his size, um, my response to that is good. I, I don't need my not, – not every running back is Derrick Henry. I mean, I get that he went to Alabama and he's bigger than most running backs, but – not every running back's Derrick Henry. You know, there, there's a lot of great points you made there, Seth. Um, because and first, let's talk about the Javante Williams. And it's not piling on Javante Williams, but it's the fact that people will, if you say, well, you know, what is it about Javante Williams that makes him, quote, unquote, special? And then, you know, people will quickly say, did you see the Miami game? Like, look at his run from Miami. Like, all right, cool, let's look at the Miami game. Why is this dude number eight? Just keep making people miss it. All he's doing is running long touchdowns untouched. You look at Javante Williams' uniform uh, post-game, and you look at Michael Carter's uniform post-game from the same Miami game. 
Carter looked like he didn't even play. That's how elusive and, and he they had the same amount of yards, over 200-something yards or 300-something yards, I believe, against Miami that day, both backs. So, you know, that's the difference. And also, to your point about fantasy football, I truly believe you're right. It has grown uh, folks' interest in the game. It has also, uh, you know, grown folks' interest in talking about the game. Uh, and it has also grown the podcasting industry. You know, it has also grown folks' interest in talking about the game on podcasts and on social media. Uh, and everybody does want to be the smartest person in the room. So when you realize how many people that are going back at you, and I, it took me a while to, to understand this, people that are shooting back at your rankings and you just putting your rankings out as, you know, John Q football guy watching film and say, oh, these guys I have ranked this way. But everyone's saying, oh, you're dumb for doing this. Why would you have this guy rank this guy and this guy rank this guy? And it's like you try to answer these people, then you go back and say, well, wait a minute. You look at their Twitter handle, and it's, you know, first name, last name, FF. And it's like, oh, this person is, you know, a fan coming from a fantasy perspective. So obviously this person is always looking from a fantasy perspective. A point of view. That's not my point of view. So people are looking at okay, Javante Williams. He he's going to be the starter. Starter equals more carries than backup. Starter equals draft high in fantasy because he helps my fantasy team win. And everyone that you and you see on the on the, the TV shows, the network shows. Let's say Good Morning um, Pop Football, right? They have uh, you know all the people on the panelists, and you know you have the football guy in in Nate Burleson. But then everyone else is essentially coming in with a fantasy football perspective. So everything that, let's say, Nate says, everyone can combat it from a fantasy perspective. You look at, you know, NFL live chat uh, on ESPN where, um, you know, they have these panelists. You have Marcus William, um, uh, Marcus Spears, and then you have uh, sometimes you have, uh, you know, Ryan Clark and then Dan Orlovsky, you know, Sometimes the folks are coming in from an entertainment perspective and but a lot of it is fantasy football driven. So fantasy football has have has had a huge impact on how people perceive the game, how they're taking the information in. You look at these highlight shows now, they don't show, you know, good blocks. They don't show devastating, you know, uh, tackles by the linebackers or defensive linemen. It's all scoring plays. It's all highlights you know, with skill positions, the big runs, the big catches. Uh, so everyone's perception in mass is being influenced from a fantasy football perspective. So with all that being said, I look at it at these people that are constantly in these arguments on Twitter about who's the top back or who's, you know, this back should be high. It's all for the most part, I won't say all, but for the most part, it is coming from a fantasy football perspective and not from a football analyst perspective. And that's the difference. It is more of, we have more fantasy football analysts and more football analysts than we do fans. So you got to really understand the room you're in. And that's why I just don't even argue no more. I just kind of like let people just, you know, vent, you know, because at the end of the day, we're probably coming at it from two different perspectives. And with that, that'll wrap up this edition of the original Draft Breakdown podcast. We'll Keep Emory on as we uh, head into the Patreon episode and, and discuss a little bit about 
um, other positions and value and, and how Emery looks at that um, during his draft draft anal, um, analysis. But thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, if you want to catch the Patreon episode, make sure you sign up. It's on uh, Justin and my Twitter profile, or you can find our pod at db underscore pod. Uh, and we appreciate Emery coming on with us and, and talking a little bit about the running back position. Uh, but we'll be back later on this week with another episode with Emery. So enjoy, everybody. What do you guys think for the outro for now? Um, I mean, I don't know yet. We pro- we might be able to record something. We can for now. We could do. Um,